0: So we're going to jump right into the book of Ephesians, and um, chapter 5 is where we're at. But what I want to do is I'm going to kind of set this up real fast before we jump in. I want to kind of throw out sort of a hypothetical to think about. So the hypothetical is this. Um, if God, what would happen if God were to somehow appear, if Jesus were to appear on planet Earth right now and basically begin to rule as king of kings and as lord of lords? So in other words, let's just, let's just assume that every Uh, world dignitary, every world leader would basically surrender their throne, their crown, their uh, parliament, or whatever it is that you would call their seat, their house, White House, whatever it is, they would surrender that to King Jesus, and King Jesus would rule and reign. Obviously, you know this hypothetical breaks down right there because not everybody's going to just kind of uh, joyfully give up their throne. I can't think of King Jung um, Kim Jong Un giving up his throne happily. I can't think of you know world tyrants. Maybe Obama probably not be so excited to give up his throne. I, I can think of a lot of people that would not be so quick and easy and excited about giving up the throne of their kingdom or their life or whatever over to King Jesus, but let's just assume that they did, all right, just for the sake of this hypothetical uh, imaginative type of uh, experiment. So if in this case, uh, what it would look like is that Jesus would then begin to make changes, would you guys agree with that? In other words, this current administration, the way the system of this world works is hurting. You You guys all agree with that? Is that an amen type of a moment, right? So give me some feedback, like if you agree with that, you say... Amen. All right. Are you hoot? Whatever. Um, but the point of the matter is, is that we realize this world is broken. It's dysfunctional. It's not working. So in other words, for example, we see something like in the Middle East. So ISIS, this terrorist group, rises up and says, we have to take back uh, or take for ourselves territory or land and create um, our own caliphate or create our own system because we don't like the way this system is working. And so what they do is they uh, take it over hostily. They take it over aggressively. And they brutally murder and terrorize and kill people. And what we oftentimes don't see is that in a lot of ways, what they're doing is really part of the same script or part of the same game plan as, uh, say, any other world tyrant that they're trying to take back territory from. So um, Assad uh, is known for his brutality and his aggression. Uh, Saddam Hussein was known for his brutality and his aggression. So in other words, what these guys are doing is really nothing different Nothing new, nothing creative, um, creatively in terms of a way by which they're seeking to reestablish uh, order. Now, if Jesus came, um, he would come. That's you know Hypothetically, the way that Jesus lived on earth, if Jesus were to rule and reign here right now as king, he would rule very differently. I think we would all agree with that. For example, if the same Jesus we have in our mind, like the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say, look, want to know who the world goes to? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, the earth doesn't belong to ISIS. It doesn't belong to Obama. It doesn't belong to godless empires that live according to bloodlust. The earth belongs to the meek. And this is what Jesus would do. He would set up. He would reorder things. So if you think of it this way, what Jesus would do is that Jesus would uh, keep some things, and they would remain. Some things would be redeemed, and some things would utterly be removed. So, in other words, some things would remain, meaning Jesus would look at some systems that are set up, systems of welfare, or taking care of the poor, the hurting, or the marginalized, or the alienated, and Jesus would say, Great job, because you're doing an awesome job. Keep it up. You're trying to stamp out Ebola. Doctors out there, you are not fools, you're not idiots, you're not lunatics out there doing stuff in the field. You are doing good work, you're doing God's work, even though you may end up contracting the disease yourself and potentially dying. So he's not a fool who's doing that. Jesus would look at it and say, well done, faithful servant. You are giving cups of cold water or vaccines in my name, and therefore you are blessed of God. So Jesus would say some things, let it remain. Keep it. Some things Jesus would say, that's eh, all right, but there are certain things within the system that need to be you know, cleaned out and sanitized and washed because there's bad motivations here. There's bad stuff and You know losses here, so I'm going to redeem this. And finally, there are some things which Jesus would say: this utterly needs to be removed. It's it's exploitative, it's destructive, it's it brings about ruin. It's something that causes damage or destruction upon other people. Some of those things I think Jesus would say is like slavery, child slavery, or pornography, or sweatshops, things like that. Jesus would say these are done. These are not going to function in my administration, under my reign, under my rule. And so. This is kind of the way in which we would envision Jesus doing. So the reason why I throw out this exercise to chew on and think about is that in reality, um, this is exactly what all of the Old Testament prophets imagined. The prophets imagined a day and a time in which God would rule. In other words, the thing that they were always pondering or thinking about or entertaining in their minds as to what would it look like if God's people, Israel, would actually function as a nation living under God's reign under Yahweh's reign some of the prophets were so bold as they would say that one of these days God's not just going to rule and reign over Israel he's going to rule and reign over all the earth and what we believe as Christians is that that reign has actually already begun in Jesus that's what a Christian believes is that in Christ in Jesus this reign of god this kingdom of god has already begun to be unfolded has already begun to be laid out rolled out and what we believe is that as we believe that and understand that that we are swept up into that rule and reign of god and therefore we live not according to the ancient systems of this world the brokenness of this world but according to the new rule and reign of god so for example Oftentimes, Christians are really good at pointing out personal sin. We oftentimes hear preachers um, talk about, you know, don't cuss and don't use bad language and don't drink beer and don't get drunk and don't use drugs. And all these other things are are really good and valuable because those are various personal sins that crush you. Sometimes we might even hear a pastor or preacher talk about greed and, you know, don't get too greedy because greed... Greediness will actually lead you into financial slavery and indebtedness and so on and so forth. So be careful of, you know, cussing and uh, getting drunk and doing drugs and pornography and greed because all those things are really bad. And, And those are important sins to identify. They're personal sins. But what happens is oftentimes there are certain types of sins that actually get overlooked. And I would call these systemic sins or sins of systems. So, for example, we can say it's not good for a Christian to be greedy because then a Christian... Uh, in his greed might end up in a system of indebtedness. But the funny thing is, is that we often overlook the systems that literally live off of greediness. In other words, we oftentimes just simply call them capitalism. Now, the thing is, uh, even when I use that phrase capitalism, I can imagine some of you right now are just kind of getting ammo and you're frustrated. Why would he even begin to talk about capitalism? It's funny. All right. Side note. There's a freebie. Anytime on my Facebook page, anytime I post something that kind of touches or uh, even comes close to a, uh, addressing anything like capitalism, um, it's, it's funny because that becomes a firestorm. There are some that immediately kind of get enraged, like, how dare you touch that? Like, what are you suggesting? Socialism? No. I'm just, you know, the point of the matter is is that there's all these conclusions that oftentimes can be jumped as a result of that. But the point that I would just simply make is this, is that there are systems in this world that, by the way that they operate, they take advantage of other people. And so we oftentimes can be swept up into these systems, and even without even knowing it, even though we may be avoiding certain personal sins, like pornography or getting drunk, or cussing, or all these other types of things. We actually may be part of the system, or the systemic sins of this world, by which this world operates according to. Okay, so let me give an example. One of those examples is a system of hierarchy, or caste system. In other words, by which we chop this world up, or we size this world up based upon how much money you make, or we bring about certain tribes based upon your education, so here's the way we do this, that if, and you know, again, this begins at a really young age. So I mean, I'm talking like kindergarten. In kindergarten, it's like, you know, the really athletic kids hang out with the really athletic kids, the ones that can run really good, and the ones that are kind of more into eating their Twinkies during lunch, and they're not kind of on the more fit side, they're the ones that kind of get marginalized and kind of set off to the side when all the other really good kids that can run and kind of, you know, you know what I'm talking about? You guys get this? Well, that just continues to build upon itself. So by the time you get into high school, what you have is all these fractionings. You've got surfers hang out with surfers, and they avoid the jocks because jocks jocks are jocks. And and so jocks hang out with the cheerleaders. So you have all of this sort of classification or tribalism, and there's a lot of hatred that are going on even within these various groups or subgroups. That doesn't change in adulthood. What we have in adulthood, and sometimes even within churches, are people that are like associating or identifying. So somebody, for example, let's say a hipster, is like, you know, all into recycling and all into buying their clothes at the thrift store. They look at those that go and buy their clothes at more of, you know, Bloomingdale's or something like that, and they're just, how dare they do that? I will never associate with that. That is part of the system of this world. And then you got the rich people driving around in their nice SUVs, you know, destroying the ozone layer, looking at those that are all into like Greenpeace and like, how dare they, you know... Distract me as I'm walking out of Trader Joe's. I'm sick and tired of the things that they have to say. So you have all of this sort of like fighting against each other. And again, that's just in America. That doesn't even begin to touch the various types of tribalism and fighting and infighting that happen, say, for example, in Afghanistan or Iraq or throughout the region of Syria or Tibet or you guys can keep going on down the list. But the point of the matter is this is what Paul is actually telling us. In Ephesians, chapter 5, is that God has actually begun to reorder things according to a new system. A new order. A new way. Not new order in terms of new world order. Technically, it is a new world order, but it's a new world under order under Jesus, not under some sort of paganistic uh, ideology or idea. But it's a new order by which God is king, by which God orders all society under him and it's going to shock you by which the way God orders this. So, with that, I want to jump right in and begin to take a look at this because what God begins to do is he reorders all things in such a way so that power is not misused or mismanaged or abused. Money is not simply squandered, but economics becomes important. Again, you can look at some of the, uh, uh, the prophets in the Old Testament as they would envision. What would it look like when Yahweh becomes God? Some of them would even be so bold to say, man, when Yahweh becomes God. You know what's going to happen with the economy? Rather than money being spent on, you know, uh, war items like swords, the money that would be used to be spent on swords is going to be reinvested into pruning hooks so that people can go fishing. And reinvested into uh, agricultural type of elements so that people can yoke their cattle and so that they can build nice big crops and so that they can have enough food to be distributed around to all society so that people will be benefited and helped. In other words, one of these days, the prophets would envision that all things would be put into a proper order. One of the things that you'll notice in most prophets in the Old Testament, they would oftentimes address two major sins. The two major sins that they would oftentimes address on a very large Broad stroke type of level was idolatry and injustice. Idolatry and injustice. If you want to think of it this way, idolatry is basically this it's a disordered relationship to God. In other words, we worship and, cre- and serve created things rather than the Creator. That's what idolatry is at its core. But then injustice is a disordered relationship toward neighbor. Idolatry, disordered relationship toward God. Injustice, a disordered relationship towards neighbor. And so what happens like on a horizontal level with my neighbor when I'm not treating my neighbor correctly or treating my neighbor properly or when, let's say, for example, I am overly selfish and focused upon my own needs at the expense of others, I may steal from my next-door neighbor. I may take something that doesn't belong to me. I may lie about them. I may even brutalize them or kill them. Or assassinate their character just so that I can advance myself at their expense. That is the definition of injustice. But what Paul is saying is that because Jesus is Lord, everything is being rebuilt around Christ. So that rather than idolatry, worship of the true and living God is restored. Rather than injustice, right relationship towards neighbor is being unfolded. And this is what Paul invites us to begin to take a look at. So I want to read two verses, first of which is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. Now we've already looked at this, but again, I want to kind of firmly root what the next verse is, because what we'll take a look at today, we'll focus on verse 21, and we'll say a few words about that and finish. But the reason why I want to emphasize Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 through 10, is because what Paul is doing is basically telling us that everything that God is up to basically begins to be unfolded or unpacked through this global purpose that god has in store so i'll read ephesians chapter 1 verses 7 through 10 and then i'll finish with ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 verse five twenty one, which is the main verse that we will actually focus on so verse 7 chapter 1 says this in him that's jesus we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Verse 10, this is when Paul actually impacts for us. This is what God's up to, in other words, what Paul's saying. Uh, He says, as the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. This is very consistent with the very thing that Jesus uh, challenged his disciples to pray. He says, when you pray, pray, our Father who art in heaven holy is your name, thy kingdom come on earth, as it is in heaven. In other words, the current way the world is, is that earth and humans on planet earth don't want to have any unity or any relationship or any affinity with heaven. We've revolted, we've rebelled, what we often describe as the fall of mankind. We've turned our backs on God, or what Isaiah the prophet would say, all we like sheep have gone astray. In other words, we've turned away from the shepherd. There is disunity and incongruity between earth and, that God created and loves in heaven, which emphasizes the reign and full and rain, uh, the fullness of God. But what Jesus was saying, what Paul is reiterating, is that one day God will restore those two. So rather than two being separate, two being at odds, they will one day be overlapped and brought together in one. And this is what God's up to. So rather than being rebellious against God and against God's people and against neighbor, and rather than living sort of as if our lives are... Uh, Uh, everything important in life really revolves around me as if I'm the center of all things that God shifts our understanding and says, actually, you're not the center of all things. I am. And I want to bring you out of that hell, that black hole that is sucking you into itself and destroying you and destroying all those whom your life touches. I want to bring you into life to save you on an eternal level, meaning you will not face the judgment of God, and on an immediate level within your life, meaning there will be wholeness and healing that will begin to happen and unfold within your life. This is the things that Paul is basically saying. So one of the things that we've been kind of um, bringing into this whole, uh, this whole lesson over the past several weeks is we've been talking about uh, Paul describing that this Life that God has saved us to is a life whereby we walk in light. We walk in light and not in darkness. And the implication is that we once were in darkness, if you're a Christian, Um, if you're not a Christian, then the implication is that by virtue of your life, you're still actually in darkness and you need to come to the light. You need to come and be set free and be saved is the way that biblical language uses it so that you rather than being part of this black hole that's sucking you in you can actually be saved and what paul is saying is that we once walked in darkness but now we walk in light so that as we walk in light we will actually expose the darkness in other words we will bring a convincing hopefully bring a convincing to others that the darkness the path of darkness is a path of destruction it's a path of brokenness and god wants to rescue us from that path of brokenness so with that being said we basically put it this way next slide would say something like this walking in the light looks like as we just read it looks like servanthood that's what paul is saying submit yourselves to one another as unto christ but this also at the same same time exposes the darkness of self-exaltation or self-assertion so if you think of it this way Self-exaltation, the act of exalting or building up or puffing up yourself or placing yourself in spotlight ironically, I'm standing in the spotlight or self-assertion, which basically in essence says, "I am going to assert my will over yours to get something from you so that I can live." So when I begin to basically make you sacrifice so that I can have life, that's basically what self-assertion is. Okay, that's that's really what is happening in self-assertion or self-exaltation. It's me elevating myself, puffing myself up, but then at the same time not being satisfied with that because self-exaltation basically needs more room to expand. So therefore, as I'm expanding myself, expanding my name, whether it be through Facebook or constantly posting selfies of myself, wanting the world to see how wonderful, how great I am, I'm actually overtaking your space, overtaking you. But that's okay in my mind because... As long as it continues to contribute to my greatness at your expense, that's how I will find my life. But those that live within that zone oftentimes are under a spell. They don't realize that they're actually destroying this world. They're destroying their lives. And unless that path or trajectory is broken, by the time they die, Jesus says there'll be a path. There'll be a price to pay. And this is the point that Jesus is saying, that it is a dark price, it is a dark path, and Jesus calls us to come into the light so that we would be set free from that. So, with that, I want to take a look at three things very quickly, kind of ask three questions of that one simple verse. I'll read it to you again, just so that it's in our mind. Verse 21, he says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, Ironically, this actually opens up into the passage that oftentimes is one of the most controversial in the New Testament. Because right after this, Paul then says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. And all of a sudden, you know, we have a lot of people that tune out because we're like, oh my gosh, this is like one of the worst passages of the Bible. It's so repressive. It's so old school. It's so destructive. And it's kind of brought so much havoc. But what I want to do is one of the reasons why I want to focus just on this verse right now is because this actually sets the context for the various types of relationships that Paul is going to begin to unpack. Has to do with husband and wife, has to do with father and, and children or uh, the, the family unit, and then it ultimately has to do with what I would describe as sort of the vocation. Um, Paul uses the language master and servant, but really in short, as we'll look at in a couple of weeks when we begin to unpack this, it really has to do with kind of the idea of vocation or basically making a living. So with that being said, what Paul is saying is that God is up to reordering this world in which we live in, so that rather being oppressive and destructive, it's life-giving. That everything God is reordering things to be is so that they would be and bring about flourishing and life-giving. That's what God is up to within our lives. That's what the gospel does. Yes, in an ultimate sense, the gospel, as it's preached and as we respond, will save our souls for eternity so that when we die, whenever that happens, We will go to be with God. But for now, what it does is it begins to reorder the systems of our lives or the systemic things. So in other words, rather than looking at money in the exact same way the world looks at money, meaning you just spend and spend and spend irregardless of the amount or irregardless of the greed that oftentimes drives the spending, we spend with a different attitude. And same thing with society. Rather than simply looking at others around us as being, you know, um, stepping stones that we step on to take advantage of others so that we can push ourselves forward like self exaltated type of a people, it reorders so that we look at people differently. We love people differently. Neighbors become treated differently. And these are the types of things that Paul is basically bringing into our understanding. And he unpacks it as well, by saying, husbands, and we'll look at this more next week, husbands, rather than you just taking advantage of your wife, rather than you abusing your power as a means of taking advantage of her or oppressing her or being rude to her, Paul says, use the power that you have, the authority that's been given to you by God, as a means to cover her, to love her, to help her, to support her, to breathe life into her so that her life would flourish. And these are the things that Paul is saying that how God is reordering all things. So, first of all, let's try to unpack what does Paul mean when he says the word submission. Submit. We'll just take a look at that. Okay. The first way we need to understand this concept of submission, it comes from a Greek word called Tasso." Hupo means basically um, over. It's the idea of, uh, in some ways, kind of look at this, to draw up in order a battle or troops or ships. It speaks of soldiers marshaled in military order under an officer. Another the way to look at this, as I've written down, to subject, to make, Subject. In the New Testament Greek, it's, it makes or it means to range under, to subject oneself, to obey. So if you think of the idea in the classic Greek type of a sense, this word subject or huppataso basically means um, it speaks of there's a commanding officer and then there are those that are basically enlisted to listen to the actual commanding officer. Now, if you think of it this way, how, how many of you, just out of curiosity, have actually been in any, any type of military? stuff in the back room, you know whether it be cops or police or you know serving somewhere okay just a handful of you small small handful of you um i've never served myself but i've met many of that have. and so the point of the matter is is that one thing is i do know is that when you enlist you don't enlist and show up and be like what's up i'm here to do whatever i want like that that's like the fastest way to get yourself kicked off all right um, I mean, i watched a few good men. I mean, I, I, mean, I realize that there are, there are things that happen that when you start kind of bucking the system or when you show up and you want to do what you want to do, like it doesn't work that way. You show up and you say, I'm here to do what brings about the greatest order according to the one that is in charge. So this is the kind of idea that Paul is basically saying is that there is an order. God has an order. God has established an order. And the order, the reason why the order is set in place is not so that it would bring about oppression, but really, it's so that it would bring about life. Um, can I get a thing of water? Someone, if someone can get me a bottle of water, please, thanks. Thank you, thank you. Um, so that it would bring about life. And that's God's aim. He wants to bring about life. And so he is really ordering, or reordering, he's showing that with, for there to be life and flourishing, there needs to be some form of order that's in place. And so the people that are to work together, not so that they would create a class system of Hierarchy where one is great and everything goes to him, and he's the most sacred person, he's the guy that has his own parking space, and he's the guy that you know has all sorts of you know degrees in front of his name so he can be identified as the wonderful person. Um, Jesus even said to his disciples, Don't let any of you be called father. The idea here is that there's only one father, that's that's God. In other words, don't somehow give yourself some title so that you can be thought of as being great. Thanks, man. Thank you. But the idea is so that in the ordering of things that it would bring about flourishing. In other words, those that are given roles of leadership or authority are to use the role of leadership and authority as a means of bringing blessing and ensuring flourishing, as a means of bringing freedom, so that those that are weak, for example, would actually look at those that are strong and rather than being frightened by them or terrified by them, they would actually be able to look at them and say, I can run to them and find shelter and know that they will protect me." And know that they will take care of me. And this is what Paul is saying, is that God is reordering things within the church, within the world, ultimately, and one day in this whole world, so that it will flourish like this. And so this is the idea that basically Paul is saying. So there's three things that can sort of identify uh, a Christian form of understanding what submission is. And this is sort of an interesting way to kind of identify this or think about this. So next slide. It, It really entails three things. Um, well, let me read this, this. This is a great little quote from the ESV study Bible. I was reading this. It says, subjecting oneself to another is the opposite of self-assertion, the opposite of an independent autocratic spirit. It is the desire to get along with one another, being satisfied with less than one's due. And this is really the idea that Paul is trying to convey. Is that really submission to one another is this idea of basically saying, look, we love the whole, the, this, the, the body, this new body, this new family that Jesus is creating, and therefore we will submit ourselves to one another, even if that means we take a loss or we take a hit. And Paul kind of unpacks it a little bit further, even in book of 1 Corinthians, where Paul actually says to the body of believers, uh, they're actually getting ready to sue each other and take each other to the court, and Paul actually says, look, don't you realize rather than you guys going to the court and kind of making a big mess out of things and causing the world system to look at the system of the church and saying, you guys are a bunch of corrupt, greedy individuals that are fighting each other and devouring one another. And Paul actually says, don't you know that it would actually be better for you to take a loss and preserve the unity of forgiveness and love and reconciliation than to keep going to the court and just having this whole thing come undone? That's the idea. So, Next slide. Um, there's three different ways in which you can think about New Testament submission. One, it's voluntary. I am free. The gospel frees me so that I can choose to do this. It's not coercive. It's really important for you to understand this. It's not as if someone's standing over you. You know, this is kind of where abusive churches sometimes can come in is where some pastors would say, you must submit to my authority. Look, at the end of the day, a pastor needs to, I would say, um, you know, earn that respect. So even... On the one hand, yes, God does talk about submitting to a certain order of things, but if for some reason that leadership, whether it be from a husband to his wife or from a father to his children, from an employee to his employee um, or from a pastor to his church, if they abuse that, then that ruins the system. But at the end of the day, Christian submission really is voluntary. It begins like this, that God frees us so that we want to willfully, voluntarily give ourselves. But second thing is that it's wholehearted, is that I'm called to do this with all that I am, not kind of keeping portions back, but all that I am. I did a wedding yesterday. One of the cool things I think always within doing weddings is that, you know, we, you see these two people always kind of standing up there and we hear their story or we kind of watch their story. In some ways, as spectators of a wedding, we always look at that and we're like, oh, isn't that just beautiful? And really, one of the things, it's like a piece of art. We want to admire it and Uh, just enjoy it, but really at the end of the day, our hearts want to leap into it, not into their marriage per se, but into that story. Like we want to enter into some relationship whereby we are loved always and forever, where someone has actually given themselves in a wholehearted fashion to ourselves, not superficially, not even sentimentally, but in a wholehearted fashion, that someone comes to us and says, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you will ever do, I will always give myself over to you and I will never, ever, ever forsake you. There's a part of a heart that just longs for that. And guess what? When we don't get that or we've been burned by that, guess what type of people become? Cynics. Any cynics here? You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> but the point of the matter is, is we become cynical and distressing. We're like, nobody's like that. Everybody's out there to take something from me and give nothing in return. But in the heart of our being is we want to have someone give themselves to us wholeheartedly. So uh, submission in the New Testament is wholehearted. Thirdly, it's conditional. Now, it's not unconditional. I mean, you just do it all the time no matter what. It's actually conditional. And t- the way that Paul describes this is that you will oftentimes say... Um, you know, wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord, which means, just for example, in the context of marriages, in case you're wondering, like if the husband is abusive, if he's rude, if he's putting you down, if he's not using his authority and using his power in in a way that brings about your flourishing and helps you and causes you to grow and conveys love and affection to you, you don't have to submit to that. That may come as a shock, because I think that there's a lot of women that sometimes think, well, no, no, women are to submit to their husbands no matter what, no matter what type of a husband or type of a jerk he may be. And I'm telling you, that is absolutely unbiblical. That is a twist upon the biblical text. You're to submit to your husband as unto the Lord. As he is reflecting characteristics of Christ, as he's bringing about your flourishing, as he's committed to seeing you grow in your walk with Jesus, if he begins to hinder that or stand against that or push against that, then this is one of the things that we would say that you can resist that. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that if your husband, for example, in that context, is sinning or taking advantage of you or abusive to you, call him on it or bring somebody else in to help call him on that because sin brings about languishing, not flourishing. God wants to bring about flourishing, according to his new order. So, final thing, as we kind of move on, We will make this quick. The second thing is, now, first of all, we look at what is submission. Second thing, we'll ask the question, who is submission to be toward? And this is what Paul then goes on to say. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, the middle section right there, he says, to one another. To one another. This means to all, that obviously within the context here, he's talking to the church. Those that are within the church. But, again, we also know that Jesus extends this to also enemy. Uh, or I'm sorry, to neighbor, where he, this is just anybody. Might, might even not be people within the church. It's just people that are are all around the world. Like, submit yourselves to one another. First of all, in the context, no doubt, is to one another within the church. The idea here is that there is to be a mutual giving of oneself, uh, idea of servanthood, serving one another, giving yourselves over to one another for mutual Edification and building up of one another. That's, I think, the idea that Paul is basically conveying here. Third things we'll look at, we're almost done here, which is the question what is it to be like? Or what is it to model? What's it to look like? Okay? So if you want to think of it this way, at the end of the day, this is one of the things that Paul says, and depending upon your translation, this, I kind of threw out both of them. One is out of fear of God, uh, that's King James Version, and then pretty much any other version basically says out of reverence for Christ. Um, Those that would kind of choose for the latter type of translation, um, out of reverence for Christ would basically say that out of uh, reverence for Christ implies or indicates the, the way in which Jesus himself served. So in other words, um, when Paul says serve one another or submit yourselves to one another, this is in some ways going to be a very dangerous doctrine because I can finish my sermon right now and be like, I'm done. All right, all you all go out and submit yourselves to one another. And some of you are going to go out and do the very best that you can based upon what your understanding of submission is and a lot of you might even kind of begin to abuse that idea of what submission looks like because you don't know exactly what submission looks like in terms of the context of which Paul is talking about. So your form of submission may be different or incongruent with the submission that Jesus is portraying here. And so how are we to live this out? In other words, what type of model are we to look at or follow with regard to this? And this is where Paul, and I think kind of would, I would lead towards the latter translation, is that we, it's to be out of reverence for Christ. In other words, it is to look like Jesus it's to look like Jesus. So here's the question. What did Jesus do with his authority? What did Jesus do with his authority? There's a song. Um, I going I put the lyrics up there. It's written by a guy named Brett Denon. He's actually an artist out of uh, San Francisco. It's a great song. And in this song, he basically says this. I, just, I was going to play the whole song or uh, read the whole song to you guys. I wasn't going to sing it, but... Um, just I pulled a couple of verses, but here's what he says. He says, people walk a tightrope on a razor's edge, carrying their hurt and hatred and weapons. It could be a bomb or a bullet or a pen or a thought or a word or a sentence. In other words, these are different ways in which we use different mediums we use to bring hurt upon other people. It could be a bullet. It can be a bomb. It can be a pen. Think of bloggers looking for ways to somehow jab someone. Or Facebook, or different ways in which we can use things to kind of make comments against towards other people. He says, kind of personalizes this. He says, "There ain't no reason things are this way. It's how they've always been, and they intend to stay. I don't know why I say the things I say, but I say them anyway." And he finishes with this one final statement. He says, "But love will come set me free." It's an amazing song. It's an amazing song. There's a lot of other great lyrics. I encourage you to maybe check it out. I don't even know if this guy's a Christian. I don't. I, don't, I have no idea about who he is or in terms of his background, and whatnot, spiritually. But He basically, what he does in this sentence or in this phrase, basically identifies, without saying it, really this is the heart of the Christian gospel. But the distinction is, with Christians, is that we don't just simply say love as sort of an ethereal feeling or a metaphysical trait is what's going to somehow come and set us free. What Christians say is that love has a name. Love is a person. Love came in the flesh. Love is not just some sort of feeling or ethereal Uh, motivation that is out there, love actually became embodied and dwelt amongst us. This is what the Christian message is all about. So that even though we live in a world that's full of brokenness and distrust and cynicism, we don't want to work together. We don't want to unite. We don't want to submit ourselves to each other. We want to actually drive away from each other and run from each other rather than submit ourselves to one another in love. The gospel is actually saying Jesus is undoing this. And the question is, how? How does Jesus undo the brokenness in this world that's constantly being driven away, constantly going apart, constantly divorcing itself, constantly looking for new ways to blow each other up, to hurt each other, to cause pain, cause destruction? And what Jesus says, and what Paul is identifying, is that love has actually come into this world and has done something. And that raises the question, like I said earlier, on what did Jesus himself do with his authority? And I'm going to read two verses and finish. So the next slide. Here's a couple verses, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 uh, through 20. I want to read the whole section here. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. So I want you to think about this. So I, I tried to kind of put this on the slide like this, like he is, and then describe all the attributes of who Jesus is. But So let's just do that with me real quick. So he is, it's Jesus. So the question is, Jesus, we know, is an authoritative figure. He's a powerful being, right? He's God. That's what the Bible is describing. He is a powerful God that created all things. So first of all, before we Answer the question, what did Jesus do with his authority and his power? We have to understand a little bit of something about his authority and his power. And that's what Paul is unpacking for us. So, if you're kind of wondering, like, how great is Jesus? Paul is going to tell you, this is how great Jesus is. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he is the very depiction of the invisible God. He also goes on to say, He's the firstborn of all creation, in other words, He's sort of the prototype of all things and where everything is going in the cosmos. 16, he says, for by him, all things are created. So Jesus formed and fashioned everything from you know microscopic protoplasm to quasars. Everything in between, Jesus himself formed and fashioned all the way to the number of hairs on your head, to the very DNA that makes you up, to every other thing within this world. Jesus himself formed and fashioned all of these things on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions and rulers or authorities. And this is a, probably an indication of the very um, unseen realm of angels and all these things Jesus himself created. In verse 17, it says, and he is before all things, he, and in him all things, are hold, or all things hold together. In other words, Jesus literally keeps all of the stuff in the material, physical world that we see. He himself is holding it together. Then he goes on to describe, he says, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him too. Next slide. This is where Paul begins to say, want to know what God did with his, what Jesus did with his authority? This great God, this God of all authority, all power is in his hands. What did he do? This is what Paul says. This is what he did with his authority and power. That through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven and earth. That sounds great. In other words, what we're left with we're at this particular point, that God used all of his power to somehow bring about reconciliation between you and I, that we're at odds with him by way of our sin and our rebellion. How? That's the question. How did you do this? Paul answers that with a simple phrase that, I'm afraid, oftentimes loses its potency. Part is what Paul says making peace by the blood of his cross. We read that in 21st century eyes, and we're just like, oh yeah, by that like, little image that's on someone's neck in the form of jewelry. But to a first century mind, the cross would have drummed up images of shame and betrayal and brokenness as a nude body would be hanging on the cross as blood would be literally just dripping from a body, a sweat from their body. It was an anguishing, destructive form of excruciating pain to die. And so anytime Paul would have said, this is how, this is how Jesus used his authority to serve you through the blood of his cross, what that means is Jesus paid a profound price to serve you. Last verse says this, In Philippians chapter 2, he says that though he was in the form of God, all those things that we looked at earlier that Paul kind of categorizes in Colossians, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so what Paul is saying here, this is what God has done. This is how God has come to reorder this, this functional, broken world that is constantly looking for new ways to recreate itself, but constantly going back to the same old destructive systems over and over and over again. God comes in and says, I will interfere with that system. I will disrupt that system not by overthrowing it with bloodshed, more bloodlust, but by letting it do its worst to me. And thereby establish a new way through sacrifice and love and kindness to say this is how i'm reordering this world it's one that comes through submitting ourselves to one another and what we see is the chief example of that is if you see god coming to you not crushing you not using his authority over you to oppress you to crush you to ruin you but if you see god using his authority to be crushed through His Son for you, taking upon Himself your ultimate penalty of rebellion, then what that does is that reorders your heart. And it frees you to look at others and say, this is how God is ordering this world. This is how God invites me into this new life a path of sacrifice it's a path ultimately of ultimate sacrifice whereby God has paid the ultimate price for me so that though I was once lost and trapped in my sin and my rebellion against God though I deserved God's judgment God withheld judgment from me and God instead intercepted the judgment for me in my place so that I can go free because God if I can put it this way God served me That's what the gospel is. It's you allowing God to serve you. Some of us are too proud, can be too proud to let God serve us. I don't want to serve. I don't want God to serve me. I got to serve him. But until you see that God, like what he says to Peter, unless I wash your whole being, your whole body, and you can't be my disciple, the point is, is that God is saying You have to let me do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And this is what it means to be brought into this place of submit yourself to one another out of reverence to Christ. Give yourself, be a servant of all. So that leads to an invitation to come to this table and allow God to serve you no matter what type of background or what type of past you've had, no matter what type of understanding you've had of God or religion or Christianity, or no matter how your understanding of God may have been formed or maybe misformed or it, it misinformed, to come to this table to receive from God's hand. That's what I want to invite you to. So we're going to finish and we're going to sing, but I want to invite you guys all to stand up. And if you're here this morning and there are circumstances in your life whereby maybe you look at yourself and say, I'm not a Christian. I don't know God. I don't know this God the way that maybe I thought I knew this God. I want to invite you to come to Christ, to come to this God through Jesus, to have your past washed and cleansed and forgiven, to have a relationship restored with this God, to be brought into this new way in which God is reordering this world and will one day restore it all. So that's you. We have some people off to the side over by the cross that would love to pray with you, love to be there for you. But I want to finish just by praying over you guys and we'll sing. Okay? And as we sing, I want you to think about your life. Think about what are some of the areas in which maybe God is calling you to submit yourself to one another. What are some of those areas in which God is saying you've been trying to take advantage of other people by crushing them and milk them of life so that you can advance yourself. Look at some of those areas in your life in which maybe God is saying you need to die to that. You're destroying other people. I love people. I don't destroy other people. I was destroyed for them so they can have life. And that's the path that Jesus calls us to. That is the path that leads to life. That is the path of flourishing. That is the path that our God has put on display for us, invites us into. So I'm going to pray for us. Sing, communion in the back. invite you to partake of that if you're a follower of Jesus. The way Paul says, if you do it, do it in a manner that's worthy. What that means, I think in short, is by faith trust that God is doing this and has done this for you but also an action in that you are coming to that table partaking of the cup and of the bread and reminding yourself that are there people in your life that you are basically barring, you are shutting out, you are omitting, you are marginalized because of your hatred for them, because of your frustration for them to those I think God would say, if you come to the table of forgiveness, you need to learn to forgive if you come to this table whereby you want mercy you need to show mercy that's what I think Paul is saying we're taking it in a manner that's worthy so let me pray we'll sing we'll respond God thank you for the cross thank you that you came you served us Jesus you bore upon yourself our sin our judgment and our death and you brought about new life so God I pray that you help us as followers of Jesus to live that out Not because somehow we think that it's going to make us saved, but because as we are saved beings, saved people, renewed in the image of God, God, we want to be people that model, live out, portray in every way possible that we can. Images, pictures of Jesus and what you've done in our lives. So help us to live that out.